So we go from massive drought to massive flood within a year. And uh, in some places of Queensland, at the highest rainfall variability in Australia, and Australia has the highest variability on Earth. So we're on the receiving end of climate change, probably more than almost any other country on Earth. And it always catches us out. There's nowhere else on Earth. We go from one extreme to the other. You put climate change on top of that, this makes it even more exciting. If there's ever a way to um, make it worse, it's by having localised tree clearing, particularly for convective activity. You need trees to help feed the thunderstorms. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome, Roger. How are you and where are you joining me from today? Thank you, Anthea. I'm joining you from Toowoomba, which is a big farming district, a key farming district in Australia. So, uh, uh, on the edge of the Darling Downs here. Oh, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. I'm speaking with Roger Stone, who is a professor in climate science, who has dedicated much of his life to climate research and to helping farmers better prepare for drought. And today we're having a wide ranging conversation about weather, climate and managing for drought, risk and change. So, you know, just in a nutshell, we'll touch on some really interesting things. The IPCC's sixth assessment report came out in August. CSIRO have just launched three key missions for agriculture that include a mission for drought resilience and Queensland, where Roger is based, has an ambitious land restoration fund underway. That's all about getting more carbon back into the landscape and generating co-benefits for the environment and communities. I got in touch with Roger and his team at USQ for Nourishing Matters, having learnt about their role as the home for the new Southern Queensland and Northern New South Wales Drought Resilience Adoption and Innovation Hub, quite a mouthful. It's one of eight new hubs that have been created across Australia to support farmers and rural communities to build long-term drought resilience and adaptation strategies. Roger, it's such a privilege to be speaking with you. Thank thank you very much for your time. It it really is um, an honour. I understand you have many many other roles, and they include Chair of the Standing Committee on Services to Agriculture with the World Meteorological Organisation. And within that organisation, you are also the Vice President of the Commission for Weather, Climate, Water and Related Environmental Services and Applications. And here at home at USQ, you're also an Honorary Professor with the Centre for Applied Climate Science. It's a key centre that has partnered with the Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries and the Queensland Department of Environment and Science to improve drought preparedness. And it's your work with the centre we likely will focus quite a lot of our discussion on today. I think it would be hard pretty much to imagine anyone really who possesses the sort of deep knowledge and experience about climate climate science and the challenges climate change poses to agriculture from both national and international perspectives. All power to you. (laughs) You started your career as an insurance analyst, I believe, before moving into your long career in meteorology, climate science and environment. So can I ask you first to lead us in, what triggered your move into meteorology and what inspired and perhaps still drives you to do what you do? Oh, thanks, Anthea. That's a wonderful introduction too. so, So thank you for that. Well, I can trace back my interest in meteorology to growing up in Brisbane, in the suburbs of Brisbane, and watching and listening to the uh, massive 
majestic thunderstorms that come through Brisbane um, from around about now on through October, November, December, and so on through uh, spring and summer. Huge um, thunderstorms and uh, and their majestic sort of appearance uh, in the early afternoon or late afternoon uh, through spring and summer in particular. And I was fascinated by watching these things develop in front of my face, uh, just seeing them coming over the horizon and over the suburbs I was in in Brisbane. And I, I was absolutely uh, entranced by their uh, majesty and their physics, if I can be blunt, just how these things develop in such a way in, in, and the way they do in that part of the world and why they why they did. So, yes, to, to get into meteorology, then you had to be 21. So I, I, I worked as an insurance person for a little while, which actually we do a lot of work with insurance now, which has come full circle, climate risk and insurance, because I was interested in the aviation sector. So I became an aviation meteorologist uh, because uh, this, uh, meteorology is critical for aircraft operations, for landing, uh, fog and thunderstorms are the most dangerous sort of weather system there. Uh, so I, I learned how to predict these fogs and thunderstorms around Australia and, and so on. That led to other things. So just studying local meteorology was a very good step. And I think an important step really to understand what goes on in the atmosphere above our heads. There's all these interesting subjects like cloud physics and aviation meteorology and so on and so forth. Fascinating area. The night shift started to upset me a little bit. But while I was on the night shifts, I started to do some other degrees uh, and ended up in a PhD in climate science back in the 1980s before it was fashionable. It was not much talked about then, and in fact, it was regarded as a, a, back, a backward step because no one was really interested in climate. You know, the, a real, real men did weather forecasting, was the, what I was told. <laughs> so um, no one was interested in climate, I kid you not. It was a very, uh, a, a very sort of discarded and uh, ignored area back then, until about 1986. And then I ran into uh, someone called Neville Nichols, who's uh, now a professor at Monash University, but he um, was heading up the seasonal climate forecasting in the Bureau of Meteorology. And I was just starting my PhD in climate then, and he was happy with the work I was doing. So I was, I was part of the Bureau of Meteorology, ha having a very enjoyable time. This area of climate kept beckoning to me. When I say climate, there's, there's many, many sort of timescales in climate. And the area I was most interested in, still most interested in, is, is sort of three to six months or a year ahead, what we call seasonal climate. Mm. Uh, so climate change is another area, but it's a much longer timescale. There are in, are, in fact, about 12 different types of climate patterns out there. Climate change is one of them. So uh, we're particularly interested in looking three to six months, perhaps a year ahead, because that's the timescale that... Uh, Farming industry and agriculture is, is interested in, in making their decisions. It can go longer than that. So that's that's how it happened. Absolutely fascinating. Thank, thanks very much. Amazing. So where to begin? We have experienced and we know we will experience more extreme and intense weather events and more often drought, floods, heat, fires, and that farmers and agriculture are at the forefront of businesses most affected by climate change. It's daunting already, and the recently released IPCC report further confirms the need for strong action, whether it's mitigation, adaptation, and possible structural adjustment on many fronts fast. When we spoke briefly uh, recently, Roger, you highlighted that Australia has long had the highest rainfall variability on Earth, <laughs> and you said that climate change coming on top of that intensifies both the variability and the potential for extreme change. But you were also really positive about the potential for good climate science, targeted information and strategic action to help producers here and around the world. 
to anticipate, adapt and adjust for what might be on the horizon and to plan for disaster risk uh, reduction. I thought we might start by talking about weather and climate and the unpredictability of things for Australia and perhaps how this might be intensified by some findings of the recent IPCC report that particularly relate to Australia and then turn perhaps to focus upon some of the special projects and the work that you and your colleagues at the Centre for Applied Climate Sciences are working on and the hope they offer. How does that sound? I know it's, it's, it's so hard to know where to begin. <laughs> yeah, this sounds simple enough. Yeah. Okay, so there's a great publication now in its fourth edition that I dug into that USQ publishes called Will It Rain? The Effects of El Nino and the Southern Oscillation on Australia. That explains weather and seasonal climate forecasting and offers it up as potential tools for farmers to incorporate into management decisions. In the introduction, it says that weather decides the tactical decisions and that climate decides the strategic ones. Will It Rain focuses on the Southern Oscillation Index, the effects of El Nino and La Nina. I guess these are terms that many people are generally familiar with, even if we don't perhaps understand them in detail. Roger, you and colleagues also produce a regular climate outlook and review for Northern Australia, and September's edition is just out, and it looks as though the outlook for the year ahead is pretty good in terms of rainfall, so that's good news. Can I ask you a little big question to help set the scene and to share some weather or climate forecasting tips 101 for beginners like me? <laughs> is that the right expression, weather or climate forecasting? Absolutely. Um, so, so, Roger, Give you a job. So, so, Roger, can you lead us in? Can I ask you to paint something of a helicopter introduction to and or overview of what the Southern Oscillation Index is and El Nino are? I think they're collectively referred to as ENSO and how they are used as a tool for forecasting the medium to longer term weather or climate outlook for farmers. Thanks, Anthony. Yes, it's, it's a particularly powerful tool. The, the Central Pacific or the Pacific Ocean in general and the Tropical Pacific governs most of our seasonal climate patterns, not all of them, but most of them. In fact, the Indian Ocean feeds off the Pacific Ocean. So what happens in the Central Pacific has a huge influence on the rainfall in northern and eastern Australia and the temperatures and crop yields and so on. And in fact, the whole world's climate. Uh, we, we wrote a paper back in the 90s in a journal called Nature that shows how what happens in the Central Pacific will affect uh, crop yields in, and rainfall in central the United States, in southern Africa, in Australia, Indonesia, India. Europe and so on. So that affects world trade, affects commodity prices, affects Chicago border of trade futures and those sorts of things. So what happens in the Central Pacific is particularly important. And El Nino, first of all, is um, it's a Spanish term, El Nino, for the child or the Christ child, because um, the Spanish settlers, when they moved into South America 500 years ago, heard for the locals there that warm current would come down every Christmas, which is El Nino for the Christ child and uh, would affect their rainfall. Uh, but now it's used much more to refer to this massive area of warming that takes place about every three to seven years in the Central Pacific and Eastern Pacific. Um, that spreads right across the Pacific Ocean, which is a huge slice of, of the world. So it stretches right across, across the, to the international dateline. So it's a, it's a major area and down to about 50, 100 metres below the surface as well. And that change in sea temperatures changes the whole atmospheric circulation pattern above it, right across the Pacific Ocean. And that whole interesting sort of system, it's called a coupled system, uh, is called the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO, that you, um, you nicely described before. Knowing the term ENSO puts you up with a, into a high category of knowledge in the world. It means I've read Will It Rain. Yes, but it's, um, it's a very powerful acronym. 
so you can walk around talking about ENSO, it's a good thing to do <laughs> uh, um, in, the, in the scientific world or other world. Um, so you can measure all the sea temperatures and the changes in the ocean currents that are, that are going on at the developmental stage of an El Nino and when they develop. Or you can use a simple index called the Southern Oscillation Index, which just measures the seesaw of pressure just above the surface of the ocean. And it usually is taken as the difference in pressure between Tahiti and Darwin. It's a bit more sophisticated than that, but that's essentially it. It's like a seesaw of pressure. That's a very useful index. It's not everything. It doesn't measure everything. But it's like um, the analogy is a bit like when, when you're unwell and, and you have your temperature taken or you have your blood pressure measured. It's a, it's a good first cut of what's going on. So even though we have X-rays and, and CAT scans and MRIs and so on these days, we still go back and measure temperature and blood pressure. Similar thing with the SOI. It just measures the health of the Pacific Ocean. So when it's deeply negative, we usually have drought in Australia. Notice I use terms like usually. It's not, not the only thing that governs our climate. There's about 10 other patterns out there. But it's a good, good guide. If you've got an SOI, a Southern Oscillation Index value of minus 33, like it was back in 1982-83, uh, we have one of Australia's worst ever droughts and the Ash Wednesday bushfires in Victoria. The SOI, Southern Oscillation Index, was minus 30, minus 32. You can see that developing or you can track that developing. Sorry. Roger, can I just Go can I just ask that? That that so that that SOI at that time was unprecedented or very unusual? Well, it might have been similar back in 1902, but very, very rare, mm -hmm. years like that. So very rare. We can measure, we can go back because the British and the French were sailing around with measuring instruments back in the, since the 1700s and 1800s. Um, and whenever they went anywhere, they, they measured the temperature and pressure, which is great, mm. uh, almost boringly so. And all those records have been kept from ship traps and so on. And uh, we can go back and recreate um, the SOI going back to about 1866. That's fascinating. So, yes, it's almost unprecedented. It could be one of the lowest, perhaps some, it depends what, over what period you measure it. But it was for about 12 months, it was stuck in deeply negative territory, minus 30 thereabouts, very, very low. Mm. I think 1902 might have been something similar. Mm -hmm. When I say the year, the climate year runs roughly autumn to autumn. It's a bit like the financial year. It doesn't. The climate year doesn't run January to December. So El Nino, if it's going to start, usually starts around our late autumn, early winter, and persists for about a year to the following autumn or winter. Sometimes it goes on longer than that and goes through another couple of years. We can get protracted events, which are very dangerous for us. Most of them, thank heavens, only go for a year. But that phase locking, that locks in once it gets to that deep negative value around about May, May or June, it stays there for about a year. So you know right back then, right about April, May, June, when these things are developing, that the next summer is going to be dry. So you've got six months warning of our severe droughts and our severe bushfires, for example. So you've got already got five or six months warning just for measuring something as simple as that. It's free. It's on, on the internet, on the BOM website. It's on the US Climate Prediction Centre web, website, on the Long Paddock website. And so, on. so it's a hugely powerful probabilistic Tool. That's right, particularly when it gets to those values. The opposite, of course, is La Nina, where you can get SOI values of plus 30, plus 34. So in November 1973, it was plus 33, and that was two months before the massive floods that hit Brisbane, uh, the Australia Day floods. So, uh, and again, that pattern set in around about May, June of that year. So you had six months warning of the big floods, but it was plus 30. So when you get these extreme values, they're very good predictors of our severe droughts and our severe floods. It can often just be in between, it can wiggle around in between somewhere, um, which makes it less useful. 
But um, when it gets to the extreme values, it can be particularly useful. As I say, it's not the only thing out there. No, it's not the only index or pattern. And they're very sophisticated models now that try to outdo the SOI. But at the end of the day, everyone comes back and asks what the SOI is doing uh, because it's a very useful guide. That's the Southern Oscillation Index. You can, you can actually look at the patterns of the SOI, which we did, rather than the actual value. You can get even more value out of that. That's one of our secrets, actually, the patterns of the SOI, how it's changing over time can be as important as the absolute value. And that's how it's used in, in predicting rainfall or stream flow, because we can attach that to stream flow and, and uh, rainfall patterns over the last 100, 120 years and see the different patterns of form. And we can do that, we have done that for every rain gauge on Earth. So we've taken about, about 70,000 rain gauges, or any decent rain gauge, and checked every one of those rain gauges, whether they're in China or Brazil or Australia or Zimbabwe or somewhere else. So you can actually link this uh, around the world and get like a prediction of, of the rainfall. The other patterns, what the other sort of secret we've had is this sort of model we developed. This is back in the 1990s, which is in Bullet Rain, I think. Bullet Rain's been around since the early 1990s, thanks to Ian Partridge and co. We can link that to production models. So we can we can integrate the climate forecast model yeah. with yeah. a wheat production model or um, corn or maize or sorghum or pasture growth or as we've been doing recently in Vietnam with coffee. Um, so we, instead of predicting rainfall, we predict the size of the crop before it's harvested, maybe before it's even planted, based on the knowledge of the soil moisture and the type of rainfall that's going to be expected and the temperatures, because this all predicts temperature extremely well as well. And out comes a forecast of potential yield, and that's particularly valuable if you're trading coffee out of Vietnam, which is one of the big projects we have at the moment or in predicting the size of the Australian wheat crop, which we do as well. So that's that's how it all fits together. And that then links into things like drought. Fascinating. Thank, thank you, Roger. That's, that's a really great explanation. And as you say, there's many tools and models, but the Southern Oscillation Index is a very reliable go-to tool. It's a very good, useful tool. It's, it's not the only system out there. and there's, There are more sophisticated general circulation models, they're called which hopefully can, can look further ahead. But in many places, I know in the United States, they've gone back to using the statistical systems like the SOI rather than using the very expensive models. The SOI is very relevant for all of Australia, but um, I think perhaps, I think uh, Will Ryan also talks about the Indian Ocean Dipole playing a similar role perhaps for Western Australia and Southern Australia. Is that right? Is it similar? or A little bit, yeah. The Indian Ocean pattern, uh, the Indian Ocean Dipole feeds off El Nino uh, with about a six to nine month lead. So often what happens in the Indian Ocean reflects what happened in the Pacific Ocean many months before. So we have to be very careful, actually, we don't double dip in using this in forecasting because you can usually trace uh, these systems back to what happens in the Pacific. El Nino is actually a Pacific Ocean and Indian Ocean system. And the Southern Oscillation was discovered by someone called Sir Gilbert Walker, who was a British meteorologist in India, don't get that right, Back in the 1920s and 1930s, he had hundreds of staff doing correlation analysis by, by pencil and paper, calculated this pattern, looking at every pressure system around the world, every, every uh, barometer around the world, and found that it's the, the Southern Oscillation affects the Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean, and you could pick droughts in India using these sort of patterns. So it can trace it right back to then. Then we ignored his work for about 50 or 60 years. 
which is pretty typical. <laughs> well, all eyes on you climate scientists now, that's for sure. What drives our climate and changing weather is a hugely complex web of systems and their interactions over land, sea and in the atmosphere. A lot is known about climate and the global systems that traditionally drive climate, and you've very kindly just outlined some of the key ones. But as climate changes and as terrestrial places and oceans heat and change really quickly and at different rates, I suppose, Perhaps less is known about how extreme events and rapid change uh, interfaces between events impacting on each other at regional or sub-regional uh, weather levels. Uh, Roger, I'm not sure if this is somewhere where you want to go, but I think it's just fascinating. And we touched on it in our quick phone call the other day. I've been wondering about the Northern Hemisphere and the pretty hideous summer of extreme events they've just had, particularly the extreme heat bubble that lingered for so long and at such a high temperature over the west coast of Canada uh, and northern West uh, America, like temperatures they'd never seen before, I read or heard somewhere about a possible link of why that heat bubble lingered so long, being linked with the Arctic and the heating of the Arctic. Reference was made to the fact that the temperature gradient between those places was now not as great, which meant that the Arctic couldn't suck that heat bubble out. I'm no scientist, but it sounded just fascinating to me. And I was just really curious to ask you with your WMO hats on, what your thoughts or observations might be on, on the state of play or knowledge, if you like, with regard to the interface of extreme rapidly changing weather events and a changing climate? Is a lot known or I'm sure there's a lot of work underway or, or are we sort of in a state of rapidly playing catch up to even frame the questions and figure out how these sub-regional extreme events are impacting on each other? It's a beautiful question, actually. I think we're playing catch-up, uh, even though we knew that once climate change gets going, it's going to affect the extremes because of the way the atmosphere behaves and the way the circulation patterns interact with each other. So, for example, um, there's a pattern called the Hadley cell. This takes the energy out of the tropics out of the equatorial zones and, and transfers a lot of uh, the heat and so on and the processes through to places like the Arctic to the higher latitudes. So that Hadley cell is predicted to become more intense. So that means that you get drier droughts over places such as northern Victoria, southern New South Wales. This is already happening uh, through what more intense um, high-pressure systems and subtropical ridge. And that's very much happening in Siberia and northern hemispheres, and that's linking to other circulation patterns. So the big impacts actually from climate change at, at the moment are happening in places like Siberia, where there's rapid warming going on there. So that's the first thing that's happening because of the intersection of climate change with these still occurring normal patterns, such as the Hadley cell or El Nino that we spoke about before. You're getting this transfer of the problem into interesting places like Europe and, and Siberia or parts of Canada and so on and so forth. And they interact with, with upper level jet streams and other circulation patterns. They're still there. They're just being poked and prodded in different directions and made more intense and so on and so forth. So we're still getting these same patterns come through, but they're more intense. You're getting more energy in, in the Hadley cell, which makes the droughts drier over southern Queensland and predicted to become so. So that's, that's what's going on there. Exactly how this is happening and what's going to happen in the future is a problem. As we mentioned earlier, Australia has the highest level of rainfall variability on Earth. So we go from massive drought to massive flood within a year. And uh, in some places of Queensland, um, between Rockhampton and Townsville, for example, the southern Gulf, north of Mount Isa, Cloncurry, 
have the highest rainfall variability in Australia, and Australia has the highest variability on Earth. So we're on the receiving end of climate change probably more than almost any other country on Earth, potentially, because of the intersection of these sort of patterns. One of the problems is, though, the models aren't very good at detecting what's going to happen to these extremes in the variability. So for the Murray-Darling Basin, for example, which is a key area of interest, um, a lot of the projections are that it's generally going to get dry, a drying trend through the Murray-Darling, which is not good news. Unfortunately, the Murray-Darling Basin has the, the highest variability of stream flow of any river system on Earth, any catchment on Earth, by a factor of about 4,000. There's nothing catches up, especially the Darling River, nothing matches it anywhere on Earth. So what do you do with that information? Because the models don't show what's going to happen to the variability. So you might have five years of drought, but then have the worst flood you've had in 50 years. And every farmer and, and uh, producer and irrigator says this is all rubbish. Now you're telling us it's getting so dry, and now we've had the biggest flood in history. Then it goes back to a massive drought again. See what happens? So yes, that's the intersection of variability and change. So um, for the managers, and this includes governments, trying to manage that sort of system, even though the trend is downward in terms of stream flow and rainfall, Every now and then, you're going to get a massive flood, which is going to completely um, confuse everyone. And so um, everyone's managing for huge drought, and then everything gets washed away in a huge flood. And that's the problem we have in Australia. This is a problem we're dealing with drought. A, a famous politician, or some politician's son in Queensland, once said to me, all our droughts start and finish with a flood. All our droughts start and finish with a flood. And that's so true. That's actually true. It, well, but the, when, we're in the, when we're in flood, we're getting the last gasp out of a La Nina pattern, and usually La Ninas are followed by El Nino. So we've just gotten used to the big floods and everyone's gearing up for building their dams differently, and then we have two or three or four years of drought, and we're sitting there in the flood when this starts to develop. The very system that creates the flood is another pattern called the Matt-Julian Oscillation that might have been responsible for the flood. It goes out into the Pacific and helps create the next El Nino drought within about two months. So the system suddenly changes on a knife edge, and we go from a system that produces massive floods to a system that produces massive drought within a couple of months. And this always catches us out because all the policy, all the dam policy programs, all the governments, all the farmers have now switched over to planning for floods because we've just had the worst flood in 50 years or something. And all the water resource planning is then geared up for floods. And then we go to a massive drought. <laughs> and after about four or five years of having mostly drought, maybe bit longer than that, the whole system changes over to managing drought. And you've got to plan for both. Hmm. And then we go back to having a huge flood. And it always catches us out. There's nowhere else on earth. We go from one extreme to the other. You put climate change on top of that, this makes it even more exciting. Hmm. Gosh. Um, so certainly hope uh, policymakers are listening to your wonderful new centre. Okay, so we've, we'll just leave, we'll just park the uh, Canadian heat bubble for now. <laughs> Oh, but that's that's part of it. I mean, what, what's happening there? Sorry, I've, I've digressed a little bit. And we're doing a similar work in Australia. They're called flash droughts. And these are droughts that, and heat waves like this that are almost um, beyond management. It's through processes between the atmosphere and the soil. So we, we set up what might be a manageable drought and reasonably warm conditions. But let's say a month of clear skies uh, at a certain time of the year, particularly sort of January, February plus what's called subsidence um, that's coming from the upper atmosphere. It's, just, it's like a hairdryer on the table. It's just forcing the air downwards. Mm. When we produce rain, the air's got to be scooped upwards. So when we have droughts, the, air, or the, the processes are caused droughts. It's called subsidence. You get air coming down onto the, onto the ground. 
And that originated from the Central Pacific yet again. So you can imagine coming up out, out of, looking at my map here, uh, around the Marianas or somewhere in the Central Pacific, up near Nauru, something like that. Comes out through the upper atmosphere and down over somewhere like southern Queensland, northern New South Wales. So that's the circulation, you can imagine that. That can become quite intense, as it was back in 2019. That substance can become quite massive. So nothing can beat it. So it's just uh, just massive downward spiralling air. The surface uh, soil starts to dry out and heat up, and then you get a process going. There's like this bubble that we had in Canada. The bubble gets going, or that heat process gets going, and feeds on itself. It gets out of control. Before you know it, you've got a massive heat wave. Mm. You've got massive drought. You've got humidity levels, the driest I've ever seen in well, the driest ever recorded in Australia's history back in 2019 through northern New South Wales, southern Queensland. Mm. The atmosphere was so dry, about 5% relative humidity, perhaps less than that. Uh, the lowest dew points, the lowest vapour pressure ever recorded. That's the same sort of thing that's happened in Canada. You get this sort of process that feeds off itself. It starts off a global, through a global system coming from the Central Pacific and then you get local interaction taking place. Americans call this flash droughts. We've started, we've now worked out a way of predicting through our centre. Um, we've got staff in the Bureau of Meteorology and staff in the centre working on these flash droughts. So we can actually get a handle on this before they start to get severe. That's fascinating. So that's that, that's that's an extreme form of drought, and that's picking up your, your point about... Oh, that's amazing. The, <laughs> the, ..the heat bubble and so on in Canada, similar sort of process. Thanks, Roger. That is absolutely fascinating. I'm going to be looking into flash droughts. It's oh, so interesting. The IPCC's sixth assessment report confirmed, as we've been saying, that the globe is well on track to 1.5 degree warming by the early 2030s. Australia is already warmed by 1.4 degrees since 1910, and that at 1.5 degrees of warming, the frequency of droughts is set to double from once every 10 years to once every five. And you've all, you've just spoken so eloquently about the incredible variability and the incredible intensity of the Australian experience with or without climate change. So thank you for that. It's pretty daunting. I was going to ask you, would you like to comment on or offer any further insights on what we might expect on the drought front here in Australia based on the latest IPCC report? But you've probably covered that pretty comprehensively or, or not. I probably have. Um, there's different sorts of drought, of course, as well. There's, there's different levels of severity. Yeah. Um, the... Um, Good work done in the UK Met Office, one of the major centres, one of the best centres in the world for studying droughts and, and climate change. It's the Hadley Centre, um, named after uh, the Hadley Cell down in Exeter. And uh, um, they've done work for us in, in, in Australia. Yes, it does show a major increase in, in drought severity, increase in evaporation rates and, and so on, and mo mostly because of that sort of increased um, subsidence that I was mentioning before that, that were likely to occur out of the out of the Central Pacific. Um, it's worth mentioning, of course, there's there's four or five different types of drought. A lot of folk perhaps don't quite realise this. We're talking about a meteorological drought most of the time, but it's simple shortage of rainfall. Just to muddy the waters here, there's also agricultural drought, which is just which is essentially what happens to soil moisture. So you can have soil moisture loss and and left and severe soil moisture problems, even though you might be getting some reasonable rainfall, depending on high temperatures and high evaporation rates. You have hydrological droughts, which is shortage of water in the dams. So um, this is the sort of problems in, in southeast Queensland at the moment, uh, where Wyvernhoe Dam and many of the other dams around the Gladstone are becoming very low, even though they're surrounded by green grass. Okay, so you get hydrological droughts. So that's three, meteorological droughts, hydrological droughts, agricultural droughts. Then we have economic droughts as well, uh, which has come along because the townships and the uh, communities 
and and the farming folk can still have severe economic problems for mm -hmm. for years after the uh, meteorological drought finishes. There still hasn't been any recovery, mainly because the soils might not have recovered their soil moisture. The particular pastures can't grow yet because it's the wrong time of the year that the rain's fallen. So it depends on the timing of the rainfall. There's a new one called uh, environmental drought as well, where the environment is suffering in its own way. So there's it's, it's an interesting interesting little uh, complexity there that it all links to. So some of your listeners and viewers out there be saying, well, yeah, it might well rain and everyone says the drought's over, but the dams are still empty. Or the grass is still not growing in Western Queensland. Mitchell grass prefers two years of a good wet season. So it might start, might have started raining. Uh, all their drought subsidies start to be uh, looked at. The media says, you know, the newspapers are droughts over, but there's no grass out there because the rain's fallen at the wrong time of the year. The rain has to fall at the right time of the year for a certain sort of grass species, for example. So that's the sort of interesting complexity that have to work with. And speaks to sort of the, all the systems interconnections, social, economic and environmental, but also something that we often forget, the, the, the time frames or the temporal dimensions of how, how things can recover or change. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you for that. The IPCC report also highlighted some pretty scary, big, extra fast trends at the regional level in Australia. It mentioned uh, in the region of the East Australia current, the ocean is warming four times faster than the global average. And there are potentially huge, long-term, significant changes to the Atlantic meridional. Do you want to talk about that? Well, that's, that's uh, actually, that's an interesting one. That's part of the global conveyor belt. I can talk about that. There's a concern, I guess, um, with continued global warming that that the uh, global conveyor belt, which transfers ocean temperatures and current, it's a huge ocean current system that transfers temperatures and so on around the world and affects the Gulf Stream, will actually change direction and uh, as as a way of overcoming the warming, try to redress itself because the Earth will try to correct itself. It gets too hot, and this is in fact what happens. A large La Nina, for example, which cools the global temperature down to try and try and redress the sort of issues that have been going on, and then it goes. Then the things start to improve. Then it goes back to its bad old ways again. So there could be a sense that the uh, global conveyor belt will, will try to switch over, switch direction, the Gulf Stream and the well-being of the United Kingdom, places like that, who bathe in the warm water of the Gulf Stream, to completely switch that over as a way of overcoming. Um, global warming so you get this big freezing episode take place accordingly as the earth tries to tries to um, correct itself in a sense it correct itself that's, that's the words yeah so that that's essentially what's going on so there's a there's a monitoring of that going on very very closely that's a major sort of um, global circulation system within the oceans so it takes years and years for it to move around so that's such an area of interest one thing i think we have to watch out for is I know a lot of the farmers and producers out there get pretty sick of the doom and gloom side of this. So there is a push, I know, from my colleagues at Australian National University and other places, and I get terrible hate mail after I mention this. It's not all bad news necessarily. Technology, for example, within Australia, for example, the frost season's becoming much shorter, certainly here in from, from the New England where you are there through Queensland, uh, which is good for the wheat industry, so you can get higher wheat yields and so on. Um, that's in this part, not, not in southern New South Wales, but in, in northern New South Wales. So the, that's a big a big bonus for the wheat industry and, yeah. and food production. And there's different forms of uh, engineering systems that might be able to capture the extreme wet when we get them uh, to help us get through the extreme dry. So there are technologies out there 
that we have to consider to adapt to climate change and maybe even make some profits out of. So I think it's uh, it can't be all doom and gloom, and it isn't, because we, we need to include some of the technologies and plant breeding programs and so on that, that can be built and developed that can help us withstand this sort of problem. Um, but uh, overall, it's not brilliant, but uh, there are these sort of opportunities there as well. Let's turn now to, to the positive, proactive and far-sighted partnerships that you're involved with that are anticipating and helping industry, business and producers anticipate risk and embrace change, such as the technologies and the positive edges of things that can be leveraged. Um, Roger, you lead the Centre for Applied Climate Sciences. Oh, I used to until recently. Yeah, I'm sorry, but go ahead. Oh, okay, but you're very familiar with its work? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And it's a centre that that provides leading climate science research and development advice and looking at sub-seasonal to seasonal scales uh, relevant for industry and government internationally and throughout Queensland and Australia. Would you like to tell us about the overall work of the centre and perhaps about what you, your partners here and overseas are doing and what really excites you about the work that the centre has been doing? Yes, the Centre of Applied Climate Sciences is uh, one of the few areas, a few groups in the world that works on this interface between climate and agricultural production and uh, stream flow issues and, and economics. So our core business, uh, climate, agriculture, water, and climate finance. So that connectivity has been, been fairly powerful in, in helping industry and governments, not just in Australia, but in Southeast Asia, India, uh, South Africa, and so on, to actually uh, utilize this information to, to help their profitability, but also reduce their risks and the environmental damage in the poor years, but improve their profitability in the good years. That's essentially what it's about. And as you say, it works on that three to six months to a couple of years timescale, which is about the timescale that most uh, agricultural industries uh, work on. So we have, a, we have a pet saying that climate forecast information has no value unless it changes a management decision. So if you're a manager on the Murray-Darling or the Mekong River, or you're a coffee grower in, in Costa Rica or, or a maize grower in South Africa or a wheat grower in Australia, what management decisions could be helped by this information? So we provide forecasts of pending conditions and also forecasts of yield. In particular, the German government, through the International Climate or Climate Initiative, is funding us to do work in Southeast Asia, particularly Vietnam, Cambodia, Lao, PDR, Myanmar, to introduce this sort of concept as a stepping stone or an incremental approach to tackling climate change. The theory is that if a farmer or a coffee export company in Vietnam starts to utilise this information uh, and then it's another year of hot, dry weather forecasts and so on, over time they'll start to shift their management decisions around to better cope with hot, dry conditions, for example, in the highlands of Vietnam. And that sort of approach then sets them up to move with climate change far better than they would otherwise have done. Because the climate change scenarios can be quite wishy-washy. The scenarios that are being put out can cover almost any, any eventuality in terms of rainfall. Temperature is a bit more reliable. They will show general temperature increase. But what's exactly going to happen to the rainfall is a bit, bit trickier. So as an incremental approach, if you use seasonal to multi-year forecasting, and the UK Met Office for example, and the CSIRO doing excellent work in multi-year forecasting. Uh, we can look one or two years ahead and you use that in your management, then you're starting to shift to climate change almost unknowingly because those models include a component of climate change in them as well. So consequently, we're doing a lot of work with industry in, in Vietnam and that industry includes insurance industry, the global reinsurance industry, 
coming out of the UK, particularly Willis Towers Watson, we've been working with Swiss Re and others over the years uh, as a way to pick up on the downside risk of these sort of decisions. So if you're planning for this or that, the information isn't perfect, but um, insurance may help with the downside risk or risk associated with drought per se. There are new innovative ways of insuring against these sort of uh, conditions. So if you factor that in together, the coffee industry, for example, is one of the largest industries on earth. The second most traded commodity on earth is coffee. If you're trading in coffee, this sort of knowledge can be incredibly valuable. Knowing what's happening in Brazil and Central America and Southeast Asia all at the same time helps the commodity trading industry, but also then helps all the smallholder farmers as well better withstand these extremes in climate, seasonal climate that are going on and likely to get, get somewhat worse. That helps the economies going, helps the smallholder farmers. That's an example. In that example, uh, and the centre and the work you and your colleagues do, are you sort of working through groups like um, development groups or ACIAR, this, or was it directly with industry and with government? Both. It's directly with industry. And there's a group in Vietnam called the International Centre for Tropical Agriculture. So um, the Centre for International Tropical Agriculture, rather. So there's, there's, um, they're based in Hanoi. So there's, there's an example of the group of, we're working with in Vietnam, but of course we've been working with ACR in the past, but we also work directly mm. uh, with the coffee industry trading companies in Ho Chi Minh City. We work with, we're working with the uh, Coffee Board of India the, and the Indian Tea Board. Yeah, fascinating. But commodities such as that, tea and coffee, are particularly uh, valuable for their, their local communities and the, and the economies of the country and climate risk. Uh, is is a very important factor in in maintaining those industries for the longer term. We still like our coffee and tea. We hope we can continue to have that, for example. Absolutely. <laughs> so the, that's an example of the sort of work we do, and and that sort of work is is ongoing around the world. So um, and in Australia as well, with the grazing industry for the cattle industry uh, in North Queensland that have their own peculiar and special needs. Um, it, it's, it's, it very much has to be tailored. All this climate information, yeah. climate forecast information has to be very closely tailored to their management decisions. Otherwise, it becomes a waste of time. And to an industry and to a place or a region so you can drill down. Yeah, fascinating. Exactly. It has to be, has to be specialised for the Central Highlands or the Highlands of Vietnam or the Central Highlands of Queensland. So and it would be different information for the different industries. And the important part is it can't just be on a website. We need people on the ground to, to discuss this with, with, um, with the managers and so on, whether they're farm managers or, or industry or commodity managers or transport managers yeah. or export companies or, or an insurance company in London that's insuring the coffee industry. So you, you have to actually focus the information, tailor the information to exactly what they need to help their management decisions. Can you tell me, is the climate finance and climate risk-related insurance and reinsurance work you do primarily focused on agriculture and fisheries-type industries, or does it also reach out more broadly and, and do that in conjunction with um, whole-of-government resilience planning or regional planning type, type areas? It's both. It's uh, In Queensland, for example, it's being uh, introduced and discussed by the Queensland government as we speak as being a, a way to prevent natural disaster uh, problems uh, in, in helping people if they're hit by a tropical cyclone or severe drought, for example. So the Queensland government is engaged there, but they're working with the Queensland Farmers Federation and with the insurance companies to, to find the best sort of system uh, that might be a mutual 
an association with Queensland cane growers or some such thing. So it works in that, in that regard. Yep. It works directly with consultants working with the agricultural industries mm-hmm. um, who are out and about in country towns and so on. It can work there. In Southeast Asia, for example, it, the, the government's aware of this. The various governments are aware of this opportunity because this helps them reduce their burden of financial um, disasters associated with natural disasters because the private sector is with insurance is helping um, meet that uh, and help address that problem help shoulder the the issue I guess you'd say um, so the the insurance company may well work directly with a commodity trading company enterprise with a farming association the National Farmers Federation of a particular country or it can work directly with an individual farmer and the scale at which I'm thinking of a footprint scale, whether it's a bioregion or a mm-hmm. catchment, uh, and they're hydrological and climatic catchments, I suppose. What's the sort of optimal scale at which you like to work with people? Oh, Is that a silly question? No, no, no. It's an excellent question because it has to be local scale to almost the farm, the farm gate because it, we can actually link an individual rain gauge with this global climate system. We can actually create the link, see see exactly what goes, what goes on in that rain gauge Fantastic. over the last 100 years because some of these folk have been wonderfully collecting rainfall information for 100 years or so on some of the properties. We can link that back to what's happened in the Pacific in the past. So it can work at that scale. Governments, of course, prefer a larger scale, they prefer a national scale or statewide scale. Commodity trading will look around the world. Just to, they will look at country scale in a number of countries at the same time. So if there's a drought and a frost in Brazil, which affects the coffee crop, mm. coffee prices go up and that will affect their decision on how much they're going to export from Vietnam. So they will look at that sort of global scale on the trade. So that's, that's, a, that's a critical question, actually. The issues of scale are very important in this. And it means that one size doesn't fit all, if I can say that, um, that putting out a seasonal forecast at a national scale and it's, it's a nice thing to do by a government agency, doesn't necessarily get down to the sort of scale mm. that's needed by a, a cattleman in Longreach or, or a sugar grower in Mackay or an export agency that wants to look at a global scale. Or an NRM in a particular bioregion. Yeah, exactly. So it needs a lot of tailoring and one-to-one interaction or water resource managers in a catchment are one of the most critical areas. Uh, it has to look at the catchment scale, what's going on with stream flow and inflow mm, into mm. those particular rivers and streams and then dam infill rates and so on. Otherwise, we have towns running out of water. Roger, I used to do quite a lot of work in the top end. It's been a while since I've been up there, not least because of this ongoing lockdown that Sydney's in. I love the top end. <laughs> been around Darwin and so on. Yeah, and, and the Gulf and um, Kimberley and various places. Oh, right. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. And and some years ago, the National Water Commission and various other big reports, you know, really emphasised the importance of mosaic agriculture and planning appropriately for different soil types and water catchments and being realistic about what they could harvest. I'm wondering if I can ask you the question, does mosaic agriculture or spreading and relocating places of production of different crops to more variegated or diverse regions to anticipate cyclones and other extreme events. Does that feature much in your work or in the assistance and advice you give to Australian Top End and other producers to help plan? It, it can do. I mean, the the uh, the farming, the, the practices for the, for the uh, cattle enterprises and so on over the years um, has very much picked up on that because 
the variation in, in sort of rainfall patterns and so on uh, can be particularly uh, large in, in Australia. Um, and as a general rule, northwest Western Australia and the Kimberley is getting quite wet. Uh, the rainfall up there is increasing quite quite dramatically, mm. uh, whereas the rainfall in eastern Australia and southwest Western Australia and southern Australia is decreasing quite dramatically. So there's a quite a mismatch in what's going on here. So the Kimberley is actually getting wetter. Northwest Western Australia is getting wetter. So if you wish to diversify, if you're a major cattle enterprise or major company, yeah. and there are a number of them around, then that's not a bad idea to spread the risk. So mm -hmm. it features a little. Some of our work also features in some enterprises saying, well, again, to withstand climate change, are there parts of Australia that might be less effective than others? So we can start to have a go at pinpointing on the trends and so on and some of the model outputs that we work with, which regions are perhaps less likely to uh, be impacted, be safer country, you might say, uh, than others. In that regard, they, they might, might buy another property or two in a less likely severe area, uh, and again, to spread their risk so they're not caught in one region that might be uh, becoming drier and drier, for example. So there's a little bit of that going on. That's coming about through the interaction with some financial planning, property management planning uh, specialists that uh, come to see us occasionally. Yeah, yeah. Roger, in Australia, what, what producer groups are you working with most closely or, or who you would perhaps like to work more closely with? Worked with every producer group. So okay. started with grains very much 30 years ago, I have to say. So very grateful to what's become GRDC, Grains Research Development Corporation, for the wheat industry, for frost, actually. Frost is a big issue for wheat. So, so we started with grains and then uh, very much then into cotton. Uh, any area that has high tech and high inputs and, and uh uh, requires careful management systems, irrigation systems, and so on. Then to cattle and the grazing industry, which is, uh, again, to the fore of Meat and Livestock Australia, have been particularly uh, helpful promoting this sort of work and actually delivering this sort of work into rural areas where we have what are called climate mates, people in the bush talking about this. Also with the sugar industry, sugar tends to be grown everywhere in the world where there's a big El Nino impact. So it's, um, it's, it's uh, sitting there ready for, for valuable um, management systems that can be delivered from this understanding. Anywhere you grow sugar, it's usually governed a lot by El Nino. So that makes it um, easy to predict, actually. So we can we predict um, sugar content, we predict size of the sugar crop, we predict the rainfall, of course, and the dam infill rates in the sugar-producing regions. So we worked a lot with, with the Sugar Research Development Corporation, as then was. Horticulture, perhaps to a lesser extent, but um, that's just, just an example. Fisheries, I think, is, is one area we could move a lot more closely with. Yeah, that's interesting. The, the fish are moving with the changing bands of the temperature. There's a huge relationship between El Nino, for example, the temperature in the Central Pacific and the size of uh, the spanner crab catch in the Pacific Ocean, for example. And the prawn catch in North Queensland, hugely related to our friend, the Southern Oscillation Index. So if you know the Southern Oscillation Index, you know what the size of the banana prawn catch is going to be in the Gulf of Carpentaria some months later. But very handy little things like that. Fishery, wine grape industry is another one, uh, particularly with water, water resources and, and their the concern actually with higher temperatures under climate change act that might have on the uh, on the skin of the uh, of the grape. That, that sort of issue. Yeah. Thanks for that, Roger. That's fascinating. Um I know that I know that in, in France a lot of the very traditional prestigious wine guilds are having to change the species of grapes they're allowed to grow. That's one we could increase our, our representation in, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, this week, Farmers for Climate Action launched a report prepared by EY um, entitled How Can Australia's Agriculture Sector Realise 
opportunity in a low emissions future. The report paints a picture of many things, including key opportunities for emissions reduction opportunities from on-farm technologies and practices. Of the total net emission reduction opportunities they present, it estimates some 40% could come from land use change, things like reforestation of marginal land, development of integrated shelter belts and so forth. 43% from improved land management practices, including pasture and cropland sequestration and quite a few more dot points there. And some 15% from methane reduction relating to animal production, which um, a lot of people tend to zoom in on. Does that scenario in terms of where emissions reductions changes, but also value-add win-win sort of environmental biodiversity wins might accrue, does that sort of scenario generally resonate with you and, and with the sorts of innovations you see happening in Australian agriculture? To some extent, but not entirely. There's, there's a double issue here. Depends on the use of the word outcomes. What outcomes are we after here? Are we hoping that we will be able to mitigate longer-term impacts of climate change by this emissions reduction, because it won't do that. It won't do that, unfortunately. The, the, the key critical issue is that 95% of the world's emissions come out of the Northern Hemisphere and out of the big industrialised nations. 90% of the world's population is in the middle. Australia produces 1% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, 1%. So we're on the receiving end of the climate change problem. Climate change is, is a huge issue, but it's, we're largely copying it as a result of what's happened up there in the big countries to our north and countries like the United States. Because it's a global circuit, stuff circulates around the world, it affects what happens in the Central Pacific. What happens in the Central Pacific then drives out drought. So we're, on, we're just like Tonga, Fiji, other countries in, in the Pacific. Uh, we're on the receiving end of the climate change problem. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't do anything. Can I just interrupt there, Roger? Perhaps park mitigation 1% could go down a human rights per capita argument there but that doesn't the capita doesn't it's a complex argument but and I'm, I'm not i'm not contesting what you've just said but what i just wanted to zoom in on so mitigation it's tricky it takes the big guys as well mitigation is tricky but adaptation and the really um positive things of doing these things to mitigate but the benefits the big wins may be about building more resilient soils and landscapes i think so i think that's the way to go and cooler sub-regions and things like that yeah yeah i think that's the way to go and tree clearing is a huge problem yes i mean localized drought problems i know they're existing in queensland being blamed on all sorts of strange things but it's mostly where there's been massive tree clearing yeah if there's ever a way to um, make it worse it's by having localized tree clearing particularly for convective activity you need to help feed the thunderstorms, otherwise they tend to break apart. It's okay for widespread rain, it's not so effective for, for thunderstorms. Anyway, if I may get back to your earlier point, mm. so that's that's the sort of opposition. So per capita emissions, the atmosphere is not particularly interested in per capita emissions, it's partly because we've got such a low population. That's the first, that's the first problem. But we can be a global sink for greenhouse gases. So the sort of issues and sort of opportunities that you described before would help. The, the earth absorb these carbon emissions and, and so on. I think that's our role because it's not it's not driving an electric car around Brisbane is not going to change. I, I remember once there was a move to stop traffic in Brisbane on a Friday, so hopefully it would rain on the weekend. That's not how it works. <laughs> our droughts and problems are caused by what happens in, in the global oceans, which are driven by global climate systems. So climate change is driven by all, all, all this huge amount of in, industrial emission out of the big countries in the Northern Hemisphere, the big, big countries. But we've got a role we can play that you described before through methane emissions, through through more 
enhanced forestry sort of planting and so on and so forth, different sort of soils managements, that sort of thing, where we can become a global sink. So that, I think that's our main role. So it's not by reducing our emissions per se, it, it, that can help, but it's by creating sinks to help absorb some of the stuff that's circulating around the world. And a lot of it's got to be in the soil, hasn't it? Because if it's all on top of the soil, it can burn. Yes, yeah. So that's exactly right. So I think that's that's the way to go. Otherwise, I mean, folks have said to me, well, if we can change the mind of these big industrialised nations, that's what we've got to do. We've got to set an example. I would suggest the large industrialised nations, particularly one at the moment, would not give a hoot about what Australia does in this area. So changing the global politics here is a very, very difficult thing to do because that's what we actually have to do. Rather than attack ourselves in Australia, we somehow have to influence big industrialised nations of the Northern Hemisphere. I think that's almost an impossible task. So the, the main thing to do is, as you've suggested, through the mitigation activity to create, in a sense, some, a global sink of some sort and build on that so we can help reduce the global emissions rather than attack ourselves because we actually don't produce much here. I have to be blunt there. I know it's high per capita, but that's partly because we have such a small population. And in terms of our friends across the Pacific in Brazil and La Nina, <laughs> um, poor Brazil used to be a big sink, but it's now becoming a mass emitter, isn't it? Brazil is, is a major issue with the Amazon boom. Mm. So, yes, we need, we need to help that sort of process here. Yeah. Mm. Mm. That's exactly right. But I, I won't mention the countries, but there's, there's countries around the world that are producing so much in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. But for some reason, we attack ourselves over it. So I know that will upset some people when I say that, but I think the best thing we can do is become a sink as best way we can to absorb the global emissions. And, and your, your observations are coming from a place of deep engagement on the international stage with the WMO and UN, aren't they? Like, you, you know what other countries are saying and doing. And yes, and, and, but this is available. Anyone can check out these sort of emissions and see what's going on. But it's an understanding of how the ocean atmosphere system actually works is, is, is the critical thing. So it's Australia's climate is driven, as I say, by what happens mostly what happens in the Pacific Ocean, not by what happens here. Mm. Roger, thank you for that. That's so, so rich. Just moving towards a bit of a wrap-up, I suppose. In September, uh, CSIRO launched three missions uh, designed to support and amplify Australia's agricultural global advantages and strengths, and I'm chatting with the drought resilience guys soon. One of the missions is dedicated to drought resilience that, amongst other things, aims to reduce the impacts of drought by 30% by 2030. The drought mission involves various research, but to an, aims to enable farmers to adapt and to change what they do, but to also maintain productivity in some industries with quite a lot less water. Roger, I just sort of thought I'd ask you with your oversight and view on how the world works, how, how does the goal of reducing the impacts of drought by 30% by 2030 sit with you from where you and your colleagues sit and work and how you work with industry? It's, it's obviously exciting and forward-looking, but do, do, do you think it's overly ambitious, not ambitious enough on target? I think it's quite a good goal. And uh, to, to my friends in CSIRO, I think best of luck uh, because a lot of this work has been chipped away at for about 20 or 30 years in terms of more drought-tolerant, um, wheat varieties and sorghum varieties and stay green wheat, stay green sorghum, I know just, just personally. Uh, so there are different crop varieties and plant varieties that are better capable of withstanding drought. So there's, there's that sort of uh, basic sort of plant breeding, plant pathology sort of area. More efficient irrigation systems that have been developed, better understanding of the climate 
that we've been talking about. Uh, we understand it as climate scientists, I suppose, but the the challenge is, um, is how we get farmers to interact with this. They have to get ownership of it, mm. but it can't just be done on a website, I have to say. So I hope I hope my friends in Sorrow get out and about, talk in the country, go to shed meetings and so on. I think that's that's what's needed. So it's I think a lot of the um, research and development is there and has been ongoing since the mid-80s or early 90s that they can build upon. So, yes, because of that, because it's a substantial amount of work that's just sitting there waiting to be picked up, that they can harness that information. 30% by 2030 is achievable, provided there's this interaction, almost one-to-one, face-to-face interaction, if we can do that again, uh, out in the bush. It can't just be on a website. And the future drought fund sort of hubs and the new soil strategy, I think they're going to put more extension offices back on the ground, probably not before time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yes, but it needs people in the bush that can create that interaction. And the bridge. It's no good just, just having a city run. Roger, wrapping up, thank you very, very much for your time and, and, and for sharing so generously because, you know, huge topics and it, it's to have such knowledge and to be able to help synthesize it is so powerful. So thank you very, very much. Pleasure. Can I ask you, this is a bit of a big picture question. Can I ask you if you were able to access your absolute dream team with a blue sky budget to do whatever research or outreach or extension that you might like to do within the next five years, I'm assuming you're not retiring completely. Not completely. What would it be? Where would it be? And who would it be for? Yeah, it'd be a global team because uh, we can't pretend we have all the answers even for Australian droughts or Australian climate within Australia. As I mentioned, some of the best resources are in the UK, uh, in China, there's some excellent people in Japan, in the US, Canada and so on, India. So uh, we set up a global team where they have, um, in Germany, I should say, where they have absolute capability, the best in the world of working in this area. I think, again, focusing on this seasonal to multi-year is a good way to go and to tighten that up tighten it up to to better information than we're providing at the moment in many types of years it's about 80 percent accurate which sounds pretty good that means one in five years it will fall over in most occasions it works well for most most situations but that one in five years that one year could be a critical year for a particular producer or farmer out there and they lose their money based on the information in working face-to-face and one-to-one with our clients we can discuss that at the time. So there's ways of hedging that problem. So it's actually you're doing better at what we're doing. That's the first thing at that seasonal to, to uh, multi-year scale. The, the other problem we have is in the climate change modelling is actually getting the regional scale sorted out. At the moment, it's still fairly risky. So we know mm-hmm. on a grand scale, perhaps what's going on, but the climate change information down to a local scale where it can be useful for a management decision um, rather than this broad range of scenarios is what's needed. Mm-hmm. And we need to connect the climate change modelling into the variability modelling much better than we are so we can pick the extremes, as we were describing before, better than we can now because it's the extremes that are going to do the damage. So just having a downward trend in, in rainfall is sort of interesting, but if you're getting a massive flood in between that, then how on earth are you going to manage that system? So uh, that's a very sort of difficult set of information to work with if you're in government or in business. The mix of shocks coming together cumulatively over time and over different timeframes. Fascinating. I think so. Roger, it's been such a pleasure to meet you and to speak with you. Oh, thank you. They're a great question. So if Australia can become a global sink, that will be a a very useful thing. We're we're on the 
we're on the receiving end of the problem, so we need to we need to be ahead of the ahead of the game. I've been speaking with Professor Roger Stone from the Centre for Applied Climate Sciences at the University of Southern Queensland and many other important roles. Uh, an eminent scientist and Australian. Thank you very, very much, Roger, for your time and for what you and all of your team do. Thank you. Thank you, Anthea. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at nourishing matters to chew on. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.